everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the Bardolatry Podcast. Today we're operating at a, a crew of two, so as always, I'm Gabs. And I'm Olivia. And we are not joined by Katie today. She has a full-time job, is moving, had family stuff, so she could not read the play in time, unfortunately, so it's just the two of us. Yeah, we miss her, Katie. We miss her, though. I was just saying, we miss you, Katie. We oh, always miss she's her. being a real person. Yeah, <laughs> she's off, like, being a real <laughs> grown-up, and we're just like, whatever. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so today we are discussing The Taming of the Shrew. Um, I We basically chose it just because I think one goal of everyone who is on the Bardolatry podcast is to at some point read all of Shakespeare's plays, and I had never read it before. Yeah, I don't think I haven't either. I think Katie has way long ago, um, and I feel like this is a suggestion just because it was something that we talked about doing. Um, yeah, but I can see why this is a play that is not well read. <laughs> yeah, me too, and we will definitely get into that. Um, do you have any familiarity or background with the Taming of the Shrew? Actually, none. I know that there is a movie called Kiss Me, Kate. And I noticed the line, that line in the play a few times, and I figured that that was an adaptation of Taming of the Shrew, but I've actually never seen that. And I knew very, very little about this play, other than that I surmised there was a shrew, and that she was tamed at some point. <laughs> yeah, so Kiss Me Kate is actually, um, I read this in my free time today, um, is a musical adaptation. The music's actually written by Cole Porter, which I thought was like a cool tidbit um but it's a play or it's a musical about a couple who's trying to put on a production of taming of the shrew but they keep fighting backstage and like ruining the production so it's kind of like um taming of the shrew within like this bigger like frame structure hmm. which i actually I like, like i, like... I, I kind of yeah. sounds interesting um and the other familiarity I had with the play was from uh, Ten Things I Hate About You. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> Which is a, <laughs> a loose adaptation of the play. It follows the basic plot, so. Uh, yeah. But Ten Things I Hate About You, I think, unfortunately spoiled this play for me a little bit because I was expecting some things that never actually came to pass. And I was mm. pretty sad when it turned out differently than I thought. Um, so I guess just really quickly for anyone who's not familiar at all with Taming of the Shrew, it's um, essentially this, the basic setup is that there are two sisters, Katharina and Bianca. Katharina's the older one, she's the quote-unquote shrew, and nobody mm -hmm. wants to marry her because, you know, she's a woman who won't listen to people, God forbid. <laughs> all right and she has an opinion she speaks her mind yeah the worst what the worst kind person. of woman yeah um but everyone wants to marry her little sister because bianca is like so beautiful and pliable and whatever else so yeah these dudes cook cook up a scheme to have their buddy petruccio marry katharina so that they can all get into bianca's pants and then Petruccio has this, like, whole plot where he's gonna, you know, tame the shrew, and then at mm -hmm. the same time you have a bunch of other 
stupid crap going on about trying to marry Bianca. And then there's also this, like, prologue with this drunken beggar who gets tricked into thinking he's royalty. Yes. <laughs> that, like, doesn't go anywhere. It's not even a frame for the play. Yeah, so... <laughs> what? That was actually one of the things I wrote notes on. Let's go ahead and start there. So, yeah, okay. the beginning of the play... So, the action of The Taming of the Shrew is actually a play within a play, and the play actually opens, yeah, with this, like, drunken tinker dude who gets... These rich people are like, you know what would be hilarious? Tricking this dude into thinking he's a lord. Which I was immediately <laughs> like, that is not hilarious. That's really <laughs> fucked up. Right? It's like, oh yeah, I just take drunken people off the street and pretend that they're my relatives and trick them into thinking that they belong in my house when they don't. Yeah. And Randall time for everybody involved. It's, yeah, it's so weird. So, so the play starts with that, and then I think, like, towards the end of Act 1, or, like, maybe Scene 2 or something, someone, like, like there's a little cut back to it, but then it never shows up again. And so I learned... Yeah, and it's... Oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah, it's her. I was just gonna say, it's, trust me, like... I wouldn't have minded it, not that I minded it, but I feel like it would have been the worst to me if, like, Act 5, Scene 2, or if there was an epilogue scene where, like, that had some kind of conclusion of some sort. Either Christopher Sly remembered who he really was, or, like, they all just commented on the play, like, oh yeah, those performances were a really great job, that was quite diverting, or something. Or anything. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, anything. But it just kind of doesn't come back, it peters out relatively quickly and I feel like that little prologue is a more compelling story in and of itself like what kind of antics has he been getting up to in the Lord's Manor while he's been pretending like believes that he's a lord I mean there's a um a servant who's pretending to be his wife like what shenanigans are they doing yeah for real that whole scene where he's like oh you're my wife cool let's like go have sex and then the servant's like oh no um we can't do that yet, because the doctor said you're, like, not healthy enough to do it. I was like, you could probably just, like, watch like, an entire play of someone making excuses for why they couldn't have sex with him. Like, I would love that. That should be the sequel to this. <laughs> Christopher Sly, like, ordering uh, ordering ale, and everyone's like, have this other drink instead. You can't have ale. And he's like, I want ale, because I'm rich, and apparently I can afford this. <laughs> and they, like, pretend that everybody he knows doesn't exist. Yeah. Which would be hilarious if he goes out to town and sees someone he knows out on the street. And it's like, but I was told that you, and they're like, no, no, that's someone else. That would be pretty interesting. Yeah. Come on, Shakespeare. (laughs) You wrote yourself a beautiful setup for an excellent play, and then you just left it by the wayside for five acts. Shame on you. So... Um, in the research I was doing today, I discovered that there is apparently Taming of the Shrew, and there is a play called Taming of a Shrew, and (laughs) scholars have had, like, a bunch of debate over whether Shakespeare wrote both of them, or someone wrote the other one, or if a Shrew is, like, an early version of the play, or if it's just, like, an alternate version of the play. There's, like, all sorts of, like, scholarly nonsense going on, but one of the... One of the things I thought was interesting is in this, like, alternate version of Taming of the Shrew, whoever, like, wrote it, um, mm-hmm. put the stuff with the tinker 
in throughout the entire play and ended the play with it. So that opening scene oh. actually like was woven throughout and put at the end. And so the debate is like whether that was a response to Taming of the Shrew or someone's like, why the heck was this frame story like just totally forgotten about and put it in there? Or if it was originally put in there and then like Shakespeare like started taking it out and then kind of left the beginning for some reason. <laughs> So, That's interesting. Yeah. I'd like to actually, now, now that I know those both exist, if we could read them side by side, that could be a good follow-up episode to read Taming of a Shrew and see if it's better, worse, or how different and why. Yeah. There's actually another thing that I think is interesting. I don't know if it still exists, but uh, this is kind of like skipping topics, but whatever. Um, mm-hmm. So in the conversation about... Um, you know, it, it, to a modern audience, the play can seem, like, very sexist, and were people in Shakespeare's times just like, oh, whatever, like, that's how gender roles work. And um, one of the things I read today was that apparently somebody who is not Shakespeare, but somebody, like, an Elizabethan playwright, wrote a sequel to Taming of the Shrew um, that was all about, so in that version, Katharina dies and Petruchio gets remarried, and then his new wife um, ends up, like, taming him. It's, like, it's called, like, the Tamer Tamed oh. or something like that. So it's, like, turning the whole situation, like, completely reverse. And some people that's think awesome. that's, like, a suggestion that even people at the time were kind of uncomfortable with this play. And <laughs> were like, I don't really think that Petruchio should have won out in the end. Yeah. I... See, I'd like to read that now, too. I feel like that's, that's good. And I feel like that's a good point in and of itself, because so far we've never encountered a Shakespearean female like Katharina. I feel like even in his own uh, repertoire, she's an outlier. I don't know if that was for a comedic effect or for the point of the title or the plot, but it, I'm relieved, and it also doesn't surprise me that there was at least a little bit of backlash, because she's very different from Yeah, it's really strange to have read a lot of his strong heroines who, like, are super, you know, like, get what they want and, like, stay true to themselves, and then to read this where, like, Catherine just gets, like, shit on basically the whole time Mm -hmm. and, like, turns from, like, a jerk, like, a jerk, complete jerk ass into, like, you know, like, docile, obedient woman. Um, It just, it feels, like, very... I think if this was, like, the only play we had of his, then you could just say, like, oh, yeah, I mean, he was writing in the 1500s or whatever. But because we have, like, this right. whole uh, collection, it feels much different. And um, that actually leads to, like, a bunch of debate. Uh, okay, should, should we go on to talk about that or should we finish? Because there's some more stuff about, like, the beginning opening frame thing. That I did want to mention. Um, sure. I th- so I don't want to yeah, leave it behind if we're, like, we're never going to come back to it. You mean, like, um, you mean unlike somebody who doesn't finish his frame story either. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we could frame with the ending of the frame. Um, actually, yeah, let's go back to that. And just really quickly with the whole taming of a shrew thing, it would be hilarious if in present day you could write a complete either rewrite or adaptation of a book that you really liked and just change one word in it. So it would be like, oh yeah, it's Harry Potter and a Sorcerer's Stone. <laughs> different 
laws don't apply to me, whatever. Completely different. <laughs> Clearly. Instead of the Hunger Games, you could just say a Hunger Game. Yeah, exactly. Just the one. We just wanted to focus on the one. <laughs> that sounds like a fun experiment in getting sued by powerful lawyers. Yeah, exactly. You've got some money to burn, and, you're, and you feel adventurous. Try this little exercise. <laughs> we recommend yeah, this highly to everybody. Yeah. So, but anyway, what else? Yeah, what else about the um, yeah. the, the half the half frame? Yeah, and actually, so I discovered there's like a fancy scholarly word for it. People call it the induction because it starts the play but doesn't oh. end it. So interesting. Yeah. Um. So there were a couple things I read about the induction that I thought were kind of interesting. Um. So one was that um, it's actually necessary because if you, like a lot of productions I guess just kind of like skip that beginning part because it seems so random and just like go straight into the action of the stuff mm -hmm. happening in Italy but okay. I guess a lot of academics argue that you need the induction because it's introducing like a play within a play and it's removing the audience more from the action so that you know like whatever's going on between all these characters is not only like something you're watching on stage but something like someone you're watching is watching um so oh. they say it's like a way to remove you from the action and also tell you that you shouldn't take what's going on in the play too seriously like you shouldn't take it to heart because it's a play within a play so like, the argument from that end is that the whole purpose of the introduction is to tell you that what's happening with, like, Petruccio and Katharina and Bianca, etc., um, is, like, double fictional, and you should not take any messages from it whatsoever, mm. <laughs> and mm -hmm. it's, like, just, like, pure ridiculousness. And that makes a lot of sense when trying to explain the character's actions, because you could argue, well... Of course Shakespeare knows that women in his time period don't behave this way. It's supposed to be outrageous for the purpose of play within a play. Exactly. And I think it becomes easier to not defend, but at least understand what he was doing with those characters. Because, and that's a good point to talk about the reveal scene at the end with all of the characters saying, like, I'm actually so-and-so, and I'm actually so-and-so, and he's pretending to be me, ha-ha. Because even when reveal scenes like that are well done, really well done, in other plays we've read, it just kind of read as super ridiculous in this one. But I think that's to your point that we're reminded that we're watching a play within a play. Yeah, it kind of turns it into more of a farce than like an actual like uh, story about human characters. And that was one thing I thought was right. interesting about this research is I was like, a lot of the characters in this play felt a lot less human than Shakespeare's characters usually do. So I think that perspective makes me like the play a little more if I'm thinking in terms of this is something the author, like, deliberately did as opposed to, like, Shakespeare, like, just had a bad month and wrote something that was kind of bizarre. <laughs> uh, Shakespeare on his period. Yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, oh, I love it. Yeah. No, that doesn't make more sense. Because I hate to think, I mean, I'm sure... There's, I know there are some plays we like more than others, and some we think are better than others, but Shakespeare's never disappointed me. 
And I feel like if this were just a straight play, I'd be like, man, what happened to you? What have you done? Yeah, because you can make the argument it's kind of one of the earlier plays, and I mean, I I think there is a case to be made for the earlier plays not being as strong as the later plays. Um, Mm. But, yeah, like, I I don't think he's ever produced, like, straight garbage. (laughs) So it would be kind of surprising. (laughs) That's my knowledge. Yeah. Um, and, and when I just, like, read this straight up, I hadn't done any research or anything beforehand, I was like, hmm, this is, I don't know about this. And doing some of the reading, I was at least like, okay, you know, at least people can find, like, a reason to the madness that makes me feel a little better. Exactly. Yeah, same here. Like, oh, that's a relief. Okay. (laughs) I don't have to, like, jump ships and be fans of Chaucer instead. Yeah. No one wants to read the Canterbury Tales in Middle English. That's just not going to happen. <laughs> no. Although hearing someone who has a mastery of speaking the language recite it to you is very cool. Yes, that is super awesome. I used to try to read the Canterbury Tales out loud to myself when I had to read it for class. And even me sounding like a complete idiot, it sounded kind of cool. So someone who actually knows yeah. what they're doing is, like, way cool. Yeah. Alright, so I just wanted to get that out there, that I was also extremely confused about the intro and was like, why don't people just get rid of this? But um, I like the scholarly explanation for it. It actually convinced me that I think it's important to keep in there, because I do think if you just present the play as itself, then it becomes a lot more troublesome without like the author potentially saying, hey, don't worry, I know this is kind of screwed up. Uh, yeah, totally agree. So what is troublesome about this play, Olivia? Um, well, a lot of what is troublesome about it has been explained away thanks to the induction. But, hmm. why, why is it unsettling for a modern-day audience? Well, if you take it as value, there's the obvious portrayal of the female character as a an emotional and abusive nut job. <laughs> yeah. Um, and also the converse, like, well, it reminded me of actually kind of the Homeric tradition of having, like, a really excellent, pious, beautiful, devout wife, and then having, like, a sorceress who turns men into animals. Yeah. And having... <laughs> The two pillars of femininity is, like, good example, bad example. Totally. Good example, bad example. Yeah, that, like, virgin um, whore dichotomy. Exactly. And that's one of the things that I'm like, uh, I know we're all, I know it's a joke, but it's still, I'm still troublesome that there's such a clear discrepancy going on and that um, Petruccio is so mean to Katharina. When he marries her, and the scene where they're first kind of talking could be played as, like, witty, flirty banter, which I'm fine with. I think if it's handled the right way, it's like, okay, you're secret. you both know that these are just words, like be- like a Beatrice and Benedict kind of situation. Mm-hmm. But then, like, her being at his house, and, and I, who knows how much of this is exaggeration on her part, but she's like, she he won't feed me, he keeps me cooped up, he yells at me when I say things that he thinks are wrong. And the whole argument about, like, the moon not being the moon, 
Yeah, and, like, he won't give her a new dress or, like, a new cap or, like, yeah. That, yeah. That was the thing that was the most screwed up for me, because, like, what very little I knew about this play, like I said, a lot of it came from 10 Things I Hate About You, but yeah. I'd also just kind of heard before that one of the things people like about the play is the, like, repartee between Katharina and Petruccio. So I was actually expecting, like, a big chunk of the play to be, like, just the two of them, like, squabbling. And I, like, like you said, that first exchange you can kind of potentially read as, like, flirty, witty banter. I was expecting that to happen a lot. And then, and then, like, them to get married towards the end. And I was pretty disturbed that... They got married, like, right away, and then Petruccio was just, like, a total dick to her for the rest of the play. He really was. Even on his wedding day, he's like, I'm gonna leave you now, and she's like, but you should stay, and he's like, but I can't, and then there's the whole thing with him getting his horse to ride off, and she goes with him, and and I couldn't even justify believing that he liked her at all. Yeah. that it was wasn't just a favor to his friends who were fighting over Bianca because first I thought like okay maybe he genuinely thinks that she's interesting because she isn't meek and obedient and he likes that about her and because he has the same kind of banter and they seem to communicate on the same level maybe this will develop into a nice like witty relationship but then he's just like you said he's a total dick and I couldn't justify the fact that I could pretend to believe that he even was remotely in love with her or even liked her. Like, he shows up to the church late and in the wrong, like, in a not proper um, attire. And and she's, I don't know if she's genuinely shocked, but she runs off and cries. And I felt bad for her because maybe she thought this was her chance to find someone who actually accepted her for who she was, and he's just an ass. Yeah, I also, like, as... As far as most of the characters not being psychologically real, I could at least understand where Katharina was coming from. Um, And, like, her reaction to him, like, not showing up and then him being, like, a dick to her made sense to me. But Petruccio just came across as, like, like you said, like, just kind of, like, monstrous dude who seemed to have, like, no emotional investment in anything whatsoever. And that really surprised me because... I had always expected it to be, like, he agrees to marry her, like, for his friends because he just cares about the money, and then he ends up falling in love with her. But there seems to be, like, no indication of that whatsoever. Yeah. I feel like the play doesn't care about dwelling enough on it. It's like, well, they're married now. She's out of the way. Time to focus on the other love quadrangle that's happening. Yeah. I also thought a disturbing amount of the play... Not disturbing, I guess, but a boring amount of the play centered around all this Bianca trying to woo Bianca crap, where, like, by the way, Bianca gets to say practically nothing. Um, And it was just, like, a bunch of, like, Lucentio and Tranio running around, like, let's find a fake guy to be your dad for no reason. Let's, like, try to barter for Bianca by claiming we have all this shit that we can, like, give her dad. And I was just like, oh my gosh, this is, like, not the thing that I, this is not what I care about at all. Exactly. And I, when I, I when I tell you that I could not keep 
the names of who was pretending to be who straight. I was like, who the hell is Cambio? Who is Licio? <laughs> like, we have enough people with names that end in O happening here. We don't need them to have fake names. Just call them, like, the tutor or the musician. And then the scene where they're both trying to show her who they really are through secret notes. Did that come uh, across as, like, super creepy to you? Yes. So creepy. And also just stupid. It's like the other guy is standing two feet away from you. You could probably look over her shoulder and read what you wrote to her. <laughs> I mean, I know we're, you know, we suspend its belief and it's talking to the audience and all that stuff. But still, like, come on. I was just like, man, I don't think I would be flattered by some dude pretending to be my tutor and then be like, I'm secretly in love with you. I'd be like, oh my god, get out of my house. What is wrong with you? So would I. I'd also be like, and your flute playing stinks. No wonder you're not a tutor. <laughs> yeah. Um, and also, that, that how would be... gullible is her dad? What? How gullible is her dad? Like, I'm just gonna get this person, a musician, to teach his daughter how to play something. Yeah, oh, okay, seems reasonable. Go on in. He's stupid. Well, I mean, all he cares about is, you know, like, because when these two dudes are both like, I want to marry her, he's like, all right, what will you give me? And he, like, didn't care yeah. at all if she cared about them, and she had no say in it. So I thought that was pretty mm-hmm. pretty sucky. And yeah, I was actually really surprised because I was expecting um, Lucentio, the dude that Bianca eventually ended up with, I was expecting, mm-hmm. like, the part of the play that was not Petruchio and Katharina banter, I was expecting that to be, like, the two of them talking and falling in love and her realizing that she wanted to marry him, and instead it was, like, him hitting on her in one scene, and then the next scene, it's like, oh, no, look, they're flirting now, and you're like, wait, what? Where did that come from? Yeah. It was very all over the place. Yeah, I, I felt like the most interesting parts of the play, like, the relationship between Petruchio and Katharina and Bianca and Lucentio that could have been, like, drawn out and explored and fleshed out, like, those were all shortchanged, and on them, like, kind of all the nonsense was the stuff that got a lot of screen time. I know, I know, them saying, let's dress up, like you said, let's dress up this guy, it's my dad's no reason, let's, let's drive to this other place, let's, let's talk about the fact that people in Padua... And people in, oh, what was it, Venice? Where is Lucentio Oh, Padua and, uh, what was the other one? I don't even, I don't even remember. I'm going to say Venice just because somewhere that isn't Padua. Yeah. But, like, how there's a long-standing feud between the two cities and how someone who's from there shouldn't come into Padua or else there's a threat of them getting murdered. Like, that's an interesting kind of Romeo and Juliet-esque conversation that we should be having why are we having this conversation then why is it coming up in the last scene of the play yeah the the part that i found most baffling was when they were dressing up that random dude as lucentio's dad i was just like oh that must be because he doesn't actually have money like he claimed or like his dad wouldn't approve like i I assumed there like was a reason for it but then when his dad showed up at the end and was like, why are you doing this? And he's like, by the way, I'm going to marry her. And his dad's like, okay, I'll give you this amount of money for it. And everyone was happy. I was like, what was the point of doing all of that shit in the first place? My only thought was that maybe it was because they didn't want his dad to, to realize that um, 
Schizophrenia was pretending to be him the yeah. whole time. And it was like a reveal that was supposed to happen later, but it all came out pretty quickly in the end, and everyone was kind of like, it's okay that you tricked me. We'll forget it. No, nothing matters. It's fine. Yeah. I, that was fucked up. So, I think the big the big question we have surrounding the play, or the big question I had surrounding the play that a lot of discussion has happened, is is how sexist is this play? Um, and I think the big the big like sticking point for a lot of people is the speech that Katharina gives at the end about like being obedient to your husbands. Uh-huh. <laughs> and how, how like how do you play that and how sexist is the play and what's going on so i was just going to present a couple of options and then and then let you kind of give your thoughts and i'll give my thoughts sure. um so okay according to the internet <laughs> there are four different <laughs> ways that Catherine's speech has have been interpreted so the first is that she's sincere because she has been tamed, she is an obedient woman, like, you know, she was tricked into becoming an obedient wife. Um, version two is that she's sincere, but it's not because she's been, like, forced into obedience, it's because she loves Petruchio and, like, wants to be a proper wife to him. Um, the third version is that it's actually an ironic speech and she doesn't really mean it. And I guess there's like, um, one particular version, I think it's a movie version, where like while she's delivering the speech she like winks at Bianca or something, so you get the idea that she's like saying it but doesn't actually mean it. Um, okay. and then the fourth version is that the play is a farce. So you shouldn't really try to interpret her speech at all because the whole thing is just ridiculousness. <laughs> hmm. Okay, I think the fourth explanation that it's just ridiculousness is the most uh, believable, I guess, in terms of what the play, how the play operates, and because we're set up with the expectation that everything's a farce, it's like, okay, that's the easiest one to kind of write off as, of course, the natural assumption. Mm-hmm. My favorite is that it's ironic because, well, it would be my favorite on the condition that the play does include Katharina and Petruccio actually getting along, shows them as, like, good, witty, shows their good, witty banter progress throughout the play, like a Beatrice and, Be- um, like a Beatrice and Benedict relationship, and has him not be a dick to her the whole time. Then... <laughs> Because then it could be her winking at the convention of the vir- like the virginal wife who's pious and loving and obedient, and her saying like, "Oh yeah, of course, like of course you can be, you have to be this way." I didn't find happiness at all unless I changed, and then like, like a wink to Patricia, like, but except everyone knows that's not true. Yeah, um, I. Lo- but, but I feel like the play doesn't allow us that belief because it doesn't show us that Patricia can love her unless she's obedient and meek. And even then, he doesn't anyway. Yeah. Um, I was gonna say, like, I I also, like, I would hope for the ironic, but at the same time, like, I agree with you that I think that their relationship has so many other problems in it that even if this particular speech is ironic, that doesn't, like, necessarily say good things about 
like where she's going to end up or where they're going to end up. Um, so I, I agree. I, I am now like coming up with this version of the play in my head where she and Petruccio like battle it out for a while end up realizing, like, that's what they love about each other, and then before they, like, go to this final scene, he's like, by the way, let's, like, make a little bit of money off of your family members by, like, pretending you're obedient now, and then we'll take that money and go buy something nice. And she's like, oh, yeah, totally, I can pretend to be obedient, and both of them are just, like, laughing at everybody else the whole time. Yeah. Um, that's, like... And then the wink to Bianca could be, like, ha, Either you're a sucker because I found happiness just being myself, or, like, you should learn to be like me and speak your mind more. You, like, you won't regret it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I actually don't think that's the case. Like, I personally read her and Petruccio's relationship as very troubling and actually, like, emotionally abusive. And uh-huh. I basically just thought if she is you know, tame now at the end of the play, then it's because Petruccio's, like, an abusive husband and she's now, like, stuck in a horrible marriage and is gonna be, like, miserable for the rest of her life. I totally agree. He kind of browbeats her into just doing what he says because she has no other option. Yeah. And I thought the part there where that was, like, the most screwed up is when, um, he, like, won't feed her... And she's, like, talking to the servant, and basically everything he offers her, she's like, okay, yeah, I'll totally eat that, because she's, like, starving. And he's like, oh, no, that might not be good for you. And I was like, this is, like, this is very uncomfortable for me. Yeah. I'm, like, as a modern person, I am not comfortable with what is happening right now. I totally agree. Yeah, she just gets browbeaten, and... Like, nothing she says can be right, and, yeah, she, her her will is basically just worn away. Yeah. And uh, it's very uncomfortable. Yeah. I, that's, that's why after I, like, did some reading, I was like, I really like this farce interpretation, which is, like, it's supposed to be a satire, and you're supposed to think everyone on stage is being ridiculous, and so at the end you're not, like, oh, I need to be like Petruccio, you're like, wow, those people were all insane. Yeah, exactly. And that's really, I think, without, you know, without doing your your preferred rewrites, um, that's, I think, the only takeaway you can really have with any sort of comfort and self-assurance that <laughs> these aren't models for behavior yeah, that you're you- dealing with. <laughs> Yeah, because otherwise your other option is, like, wow, Shakespeare, like, just wrote something that makes me sad. <laughs> yeah. Basically. Yeah, it does. It does. And, oh, it's just so problematic. Yes, it is. It is very problematic. I, um, I think it's interesting that there is, you know, controversy over how sexist the play is and like I guess some people even go so far as to see it as like some sort of like like they try to interpret like in a proto-feminist way um like I said by bringing in like all the satirical elements or like trying to claim that it's actually highlighting what was one interpretation I read that was pretty interesting was that um Everything that men do to women in the play is actually supposed to be viewed by the audience, like, with 
some sort of horror and it's actually Shakespeare pointing out like oh when these dudes are like bartering for Bianca's hand you're seeing how like a woman has no place in the exchange and how people are just you know trading her around like an animal and and Petruccio does this stuff to Katharina and she like has no voice in it like that's actually supposed to be kind of horrifying to you um so I thought that was kind of an interesting way of looking at it, that all that stuff that happens that makes you cringe is actually supposed to make you cringe and realize. It's it's almost like turning Shakespeare into like a, look how badly women are treated in our society sort of thing. Um, I like that interpretation <laughs> much better, because it's like it becomes an SNL skit. Yeah. And about, about culture. It, it does. And I, I think that might be giving, like, a little too much credit to Shakespeare, because, I mean, he was, like, a dude in the 1600s, but, um, that, that does at least make me feel, like, I think if you just read the play straight, like, for the first time, like, both of us did, you're just like, oh my god, like, what did I just read? That was kind of awful. And then... Yep reading all this controversy over it, I was like, you know, I don't know, like, how much of this is legitimate analysis and how much of it is just, like, modern people wishing that it wasn't problematic. <laughs> but yeah. it did at least make me feel better that there was, mo like, there was more than one way to interpret it and the only interpretation is not, like, this play is really sexist. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I feel like... The, a good way to see, at least actually, at least in a modern sense, if someone were to put on this play now, to have the characters from the induction on stage watching and reacting in a particular way would be a great context clue for the audience to understand that, like, okay, the normal people who are watching this play think this is a bad idea. So we, in turn, can also say that we think it's a bad idea because we're given permission to do so. Right, like, um, if the people on stage are, like, horrified by something that's actually, like, a comedic moment, you can be like, wait a minute. Exactly. I wonder... And I feel like maybe, like, maybe we could be hopeful and say that that's another reason that Shakespeare put the induction there, is so that with those other characters on stage, like, laughing at, um, Katharina or being horrified that Petruccio is being such a dick would remind the audience, like, we don't actually think these characters are commenting on the way society should work, we're just commenting on the way it does work and how it horrifies us. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I wonder I wonder if there have ever been any productions done where they do that. I don't know. I would be interested to see if there were. I think it's a very good and telling way to show the audience how we're supposed to interpret this behavior in a very subtle way. Yeah, like, I think that's a way you could kind of get away with making the play feel less um, horrifying to a modern audience is if, like, you have those characters on stage who feel like you feel, and you're like, oh, wait, okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's someone sane in the room. I feel better now. <laughs> All right, let me just, I'm just going to peek at my other notes real quick and see if there's anything else I wanted sure. to... I think I managed to bring up all the, uh, all the research that I did, which I'm glad I did, because otherwise I was just totally gonna, like, diss this play, like, I know. like, what is happening, this is, like, so sexist, I can't, 
I can't do it, but... <laughs> yeah, I was pretty ready to bash it and be like, this just is terrible. Shakespeare was, like, taking something that inhibited his artistic sensibilities when he wrote this. <laughs> no. Um... Okay, I think that's what everything I have. I guess um, my final comment, which like we've already talked about, is um, is that I just wish there was like more more of the women on stage because it ended up being a surprising amount not actually about them, and I would have liked to see more of like Katharina speaking or standing up for herself and having a not effed up relationship with Petruccio and I would have liked to see Bianca have a lot more agency as well. I know. I feel bad. I feel like ugh, it's like she's just a consolation prize at the end of this weirdly long and arduous experience and she doesn't even get to express happiness or anger or anything by the end of it. It's just kind of like she's just still there waiting for a husband. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, even though I think Ten Things I Hate About You is definitely not the perfect film, um, <laughs> one thing I will say for it is if if you left Tam- Taming of the Shrew like feeling like that, um, the movie does, in fact, give both Katharina and Bianca um, more agency and gets rid of a lot of those pretty... Uh, weird elements of <laughs> Petruccio's <laughs> relationship with her. Good. That makes me feel better. So I feel like it's not as bad as the play. It's not as great as some of the other other adaptations, but it's like a step up from the horrible. I'd like to see Kiss Me, Kate. Yeah, I would too. From the way you described it, it sounds like that gets more to the heart of what I wanted this play to be and what it actually was. Yeah, I, th- I think maybe the reason reading in this play is kind of disappointing is pretty much the only thing ever, like anyone really is interested in is the relationship between these characters and their banter. And, this, and the play mm. itself just doesn't have quite enough of it. Um... And what it does have, some of it's kind of troubling, and so people were like, well, I love the idea of, like, the people who fight all the time but are secretly in love with each other. Let's just, like, turn that into a thing. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like that's all, like, that's the main thing I come to, or the main thing I come for when I read Much Ado About Nothing, and I feel like that would have been the main attraction for me in a play like this, and... I totally agree, we just didn't get enough of it for it to be satisfying, or kind of worth it. Yeah. In this sense, not to be too harsh on the play, but... Yeah, I would have definitely liked more of a Beatrice Benedict thing going on. Yeah. And then I feel like it would have been just better. (laughs) Just Just, more interesting. Just better. (laughs) Yeah. All around better. Yeah, it's like, like, while we can say, you know, maybe it is a farce, maybe it is, like, a satirical commentary or whatever, I I think that still doesn't necessarily make you really enjoy it, because one of the things, like, I come to Shakespeare for is feeling like the characters are three-dimensional, and that's just not the case with any character in this play. Yeah, I 
can't I can't say there was one character whose presence I enjoyed or whose lines I thought were contributing greatly to the scene or whose actions I thought were moving the plot forward in a dramatic way. Yeah. Nothing. Yes, we, we have to conclude farce or either Shakespeare apparently, like, lost his mind when he wrote this play. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Or maybe it's not Shakespeare. Someone just added it to the repertoire to give it fame and glory later in life. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, do you have anything else you want to say about it? Um, I don't think so. I think we did a very good job covering all the... Not that there's a lot of ground, because the play is actually... I was surprised by how short it was. Yeah, um, thank God. Yeah, right. Can you imagine <laughs> it being Hamlet-like? I think oh my I'd cry. God. No. <laughs> no one wants that. Um, and I think the one thing, or maybe the few things I'll take away from this is that I now want to write good Catherine Petruccio fan fiction where they don't hate each other and Petruccio isn't a terrible human being. Mm-hmm. Yep, I'm on board. And the. And then I probably have to see some things I hate about you because at least then I'll get a sense of closure in some way <laughs> because I feel like this play is not, it did not leave me content or satisfied or kind of anything but concerned. Yeah, I'd recommend it. You can get, you can get a little bit more of like your, your girl power going on with that one. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like that's what I need. I need to go like watch something uber feminist now to kind of cleanse my palate <laughs> <laughs> we'll figure that out for the next one what's the most feminist Shakespeare play we'll do that next probably one that we've already covered yeah probably <laughs> <laughs> well I think with that um, we'll go ahead and wrap it up if anyone listening would love to tell us what you think about Taming of the True or if we're wrong or you agree with us or if you love it or hate it or whatever um, you can let us know several ways you can comment on our website where you probably are right now at www.minervamag.com you can tweet at us um, at magminerva um, you can also find us on Facebook and on Tumblr so we are on the social media if you want to contact us that way and I will go ahead and throw out there that we are also um, always open to suggestions so if there's like any particular Shakespearean topic you would like to you know have addressed or listen to a podcast about please let us know and we will definitely um, consider it so yeah that'd be great talk to us we want, we'd love to hear from you other Shakespeare nerds unite <laughs> Yes, exactly. So I think with that we're gonna we're gonna wrap up. So thanks for listening everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.